Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Mentor. I'm Mark Boris. You know, having a clear and robust purpose will help set a long-term strategy of your business, a purpose that you can actually believe in. But do you know why it works so well? Well, Hunter Johnson, this dude, has created an aspirational brand called Stuff, S-T-U-F-F, which sells skincare products for men, which, by the way, backed by the one and only Ian Thorpe. Yep, Thorpey. But really, what Stuff fuels is Hunter's greater purpose, and that is strengthening young men's mental health. Stuff invests directly in the Man Cave, which provides emotional intelligence workshops to teen boys across the country and across the globe. Because right now, masculinity is, quite frankly, very confusing, especially for someone like me from my generation. Hunter and I are going to get into how the Man Cave is a key shareholder in stuff and will one day benefit from whatever stuff ultimately achieves. The gap he's filled regarding men's mental health and the things to keep in mind when building a strong business purpose. So let's get into it. Hunter Johnson, welcome to The Mentor, mate. Mate, very excited to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. So you're a, I mean, you've probably been a founder of lots of things, but you're a founder and CEO of two purpose-driven organisations and probably others, but I want to talk about two in particular, one of which is stuff. I'd like to kick it off on Man Cave. What is the Man Cave? Effectively, what we do is work with tens of thousands of high school boys and create spaces where they can take off the mask and start to open up and develop some understanding for their own inner worlds, develop some language for their emotions, and then develop some relationship skills for those around them. And I think the reason why we exist is, you know, the the statistics we're probably all too familiar with. Suicide being the leading cause of death for young men under the age of 25. So it's not drink driving, overdosing on drugs, you know, coward punches. It's actually themselves. The other side of that, we know that one woman every week is killed at the hands of male family violence. And my whole belief uh, is that that is preventable. If we access young men early on, we take a, a preventative but also a positive approach to working with them, we can prevent some of those statistics later on. And, you know, it's personal for me. Some of the most important men in my life I saw struggle with mental illness, um, you know, whether it was anxiety, years of depression or even suicide. And then, you know, the stories I grew up hearing about the most important women in my life started to hear their stories of, you know, sexual abuse, misogyny, you name it. And again, it just didn't make sense to me why the systems we had to deal with that were around crisis management. And so that was too late, too late, too late. We're throwing money at a symptom. And, And my whole belief was, right, there's enough going on there. I also know some incredible young men who have a really tricky teenage years. 
I also know my journey was, you know, I was definitely a rebellious kid and was seeking, you know, mentoring and guidance that probably wasn't there to the level I needed. And, um, you know, I just thought, what would it look like to send in diverse, relatable, charismatic male facilitators to go into these schools and be the, you know, the healthy role models for these young men? Is this a personal thing from your point of view? Like, what did you experience or what did you see? Yeah, I think I, so I was in a culture that I loved at the time. It was very hyper-masculine. You know, it was about banter, competition, conquest, um, you know, who could come back from the weekend with the best stories to share with your mates. And also, you know, I was in a sporting team that was really competitive and we did really well. And, you know, I was absolutely a ringleader in all of that. And then also there was times where that was really destructive and, you know, I did things outside of my values, whether it was, you know, choosing to overstep the mark with, you know, whether you call it bullying or giving someone a hard time to, you know, my journey with learning how to be really respectful inside of relationships at the same time. And that's taken, you know, a lot of personal courage and accountability to actually look at that really objectively and, and clean that up. Um, and then for me, I guess the, the inception of that was, um, yeah, just choosing to do something about it. I figured I've got limited time on this planet and I see, you know, some of the, I guess the behavior that I see, um, men living into, um, that I personally believe is not a reflection of their higher self. And my whole belief is that, you know, when stripped away, we are incredible people who want to make a difference, want to support our communities. Um, and I reckon, you know, and I've got a pretty good sample size of about 30,000 young men we've worked with now that when given the safe space, the permission, but also the language to start to take accountability and understand our inner worlds, young men are incredible. And that's not a narrative that's really out there in the moment at the moment, I think. And that's something I'm inspired by. What is that positive future state for masculinity that not just young men can get around, but women, non-binary people can get excited for too? It is a bit confusing um, for young people and confusing for older people too. Um, what is masculinity today? Like uh, in your view, because I'd be interested to know because, you know, I've been through a number of generations and it has changed. It changes all the time. I'd be keen to hear what you're seeing would be a good standard Sure. Well, I think as men, we need to be having this conversation actively because I think it's live. And I think the model or the template or the script of masculinity that, for instance, your generation had, you know, my dad, my grandfather had is very different set of rules around expectations and reward to what this next generation is inheriting. And I think in a sense, we're finding ourselves in between stories. We're kind of at this new emergent time where what was, we know kind of worked, but also, you know, some of the statistics we referred to, also the state of the world, you know, it's up for up for discussion. And um, my whole belief is it's not about throwing away our favorite masculine traits. Absolutely not. It's keeping them, but developing more range in our identity so that some days we do need to be stoic and strong, pull our socks up, get on with it. The next day, we do need to develop the range to, if required, be honest, be open, be vulnerable, you know, ask for support, shed a tear if that's required. But that requires enormous courage and inner work to actually go back and look at your past often. And when I hear these language around toxic masculinity, it's not a word that I tend to use or a phrase I tend to use, but what I do in my mind is I sub that out with intergenerational trauma. 
And I think if we look at how society has been structured post-World Wars, you know, it's coming back in these often, you know, many people, but particularly a lot of men are coming back into society carrying a lot of trauma. And then we see that play out in family dynamics, you know, parenting, father-son dynamics, how people manage in the workplace, um, the decisions that certain politicians make just to remain in control and not to admit that they might be wrong and made a mistake and to clean that up. And so for me, again, the, in terms of modern masculinity, I think we're at a point where it's tricky to find who those role models are. We're very, it's very emergent. I think we can cherry pick from some interesting people, but I think we're now discovering who are those role models. And for me, it comes down to who are the men of character, not the polished, not the perfect, but men who are able to make decisions that not just about individual success over collective success, but it is about community, it's about trust, it's about love, and it's about creating a better world for our grandkids. That is what I think is really interesting. And again, it's I come back to just flexing this muscle of accountability and responsibility, you know, going, okay, I may have made some mistakes in my past. I know that's not who I am, but I'm willing to look at it and and look at it and look at it and actually take responsibility for it. I think that's an important inflection point in terms of what you just said. I, I know I've made some mistakes in the past. Who determines what is a mistake? It's a great question, isn't it? You know, and unfortunately these days it's Twitter who uh, is, <laughs> is the, uh, the determinant of that. Um, and, you know, that just to talk to that point, it, you know, things like the media cycle, which is focused on hijacking our attention, which we know when something is shocking or outrageous or negative gets way more attention than a positive news story. And then we see the algorithm start to feed that because it's based on where we're spending our attention. Then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in and of itself. Um, but to your question, I think, you know, I reckon it comes down to the individual person and the people that they trust. You know, and I think if someone has made a mistake, they know it, you know, they, they definitely know it. And if they're surrounded by people that they trust, and that's, you know, pretty fortunate position to be in, often those people can be a mirror. And, you know, you know, one of those sayings, which I'm sure you're familiar with is whether some of the five people we spend our time with, right? And that's, that's the whole of mirrors. And I think, particularly in a masculine context, you know, one of the things that's been really um, important for me in my development is this concept of like group masculine accountability. So who are the people that I absolutely trust that can hold me to an account? They see my higher self. And if I step out of line with that, they can very lovingly offer me that truth. And that takes a muscle because when I first started to step into those spaces, I took it super personally. But as I developed, I guess, the sense of self, the understanding and to recognize that my behaviors are not who I am. I am who I am. And I've stepped out of line. It's up to me to do something about it. And yeah, I think one of the things I often reflect on is that cancel culture, you know, it's a really loaded thing. It's We've got, you know, people being held to account for things that they've done wrong. To some level, that's absolutely important. But the thing I'm curious about is the signal that cancel culture tells people who have made mistakes, um, but don't want to either acknowledge it or do want to acknowledge it, but they see the repercussions of effectively losing your career, your life, etc. And so I'm interested in what's next. Is there a comeback culture, you know, of people who have made some serious blunders and actually want to make um, up for that and take responsibility and move forward? That's what I think is really, I think, interesting for me. And again, that doesn't have to be this macro declaration of what I've done it's no it might be an interpersonal thing with someone you know who you haven't spoke to in a while but it, it clicks into your memory um actually I can give you an example I I, I got a uh Instagram message 
uh, probably about two weeks ago from uh, a woman I used to work at a, a bar with and she was like, hey, I was talking about what you were doing with um, Man Cave to an old friend who you went to school with. And um, yeah, he was actually a bit upset with what you were doing because your group gave him a really hard time at school. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I, I wrote and said, thank you for your honesty. Um, I'm really sorry that that happened and I'd actually really like to extend that apology to him if he's comfortable to receive that. And I've since, you know, had that conversation with him and that was incredibly healing for both of us. Um, and I think that my journey with that is definitely not easy. But again, I come back to just being, for me, someone of character who does the right thing when no one's looking. And that's a practice, absolute practice. It's not about being polished, but it's just about the rhythm. You mentioned Twitter earlier on. Is there a danger, particularly cancel culture, but is there a danger of self-righteousness and uh, people like teaming up together and forming a, a moral club or an ethics club, then effectively making judgments on people, what they consider to be their standards? Yeah, well, I think Twitter is its own podcast conversation in and of itself around, you know, the medium, the word limit, you know, who's using it and why, the anonymous nature of many of the accounts on there. Um, but it's, it's absolutely a tool that we know gets used as um, political bait you know, or social capital for people. Um, the thing that I think is missing is the space to have messy dialogue. You know, I think that's the only way we can really learn. I think polarity is an incredibly important part of the human experience. And for me to sit here and have an opposite belief system to you, but for us to respectfully engage, I think is how we move forward. So just respect. In other words, respect your views. I, you respect my views. I respect your views. And we'll try and meet in the middle somewhere, at least communicate. If I go back to the man cave now, in terms of what you take to the schools under the branding of the man cave, what, what's it look like? So we started this in 2014, which was pre, you know, the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein, Donald Trump. So it was pre all the, the drama that ensued. And, um, yeah, it was definitely not something that was done on the mainstream. And we started off as like a passion project where me and my best mate would take a sick day off our other job and um, basically drive out into communities. And really what we did was just created a space where young men first of all felt respected, they felt safe and they felt like they could talk about what was actually going on for themselves. And the language which I use is they just felt comfortable enough to take off the mask that they were wearing and start to open up. And One-on-one or in a group? So it was in a group, right. yeah. And I think working particularly with young people but in specifically with young men, they have um, amazing bullshit detectors and they will sniff fear out a mile away and they will test you. So it definitely takes a certain type of energy to be able to walk into that environment where they, you know, particularly in their whole life if they've been told to toughen up, don't cry, don't be gay, don't be like a girl and suddenly you're walking in with a, you know, a lesson that's like actually it's okay to talk about your inner world or your emotions or your feelings, they will definitely test you out. Um, but what I've found is that young men absolutely respect the courage of authenticity and the beautiful thing about authenticity, which is a quote my mate shared with me, is that authenticity changes the particles in the room. When someone shares their story or opens up about something that's real to them, we all lean in because we can feel the truth. And that's absolutely the case for young men who often have just been in a culture of banter. The, you know, inside of their group, you know, there's probably a lot of judgment and a lot of policing around the behaviors that they accept or don't accept. And then what we're able to do is just take them off autopilot just for a moment and just ask them simple questions like, who feels safe? 
in this environment, in this culture. You know, do, do they just say, what do you mean by safe? No, they get it. You know, are we talking about 80? So the age that we work with 12 to 16, yeah, so, so you, year 7 yeah, to year 10. Yeah, right. Yeah. And do they understand what do you mean by how do you, do you feel safe? Yeah, absolutely. Do they then go on to say safe where at home or at school or with my mates or? Yeah, again, it depends on the on the question that is being opened. Um, and I think the distinction for us is that it's not about presenting. So we're not coming in with a slideshow to fix yeah. masculinity. Yeah, yeah. It's um, absolutely about walking in and understanding the culture that's present and be able to deal with the different archetypes who are in the room. So there might be, you know, the jock who just like wants attention and power and is usually usually directing traffic around the classroom. Yeah, it runs a narrative. Yeah, exactly. And how do you get him to um, use his leadership skills not just for entertainment purposes but something for meaningful you know to the kid who's the introvert who just sits in the corner but often if you ask him a question has some wisdom to drop to the kid who's the overshare and might derail the classroom um so for us it's it's changing the dynamic of the classroom so there's no it's not set up in a traditional way smoothing it out Big time and making an environment that's special and sacred, you know, and and this isn't school for today. This is the man cave. This is where we go to lean into some edgy conversations that will support you on your journey to being an incredible young man, whatever that means to you. Nothing is off limits, but that comes down to the confidentiality that we're going to create today. Obviously, there's no teachers in the class. Sometimes there is. So it's definitely a relationship that we build with the school and I think it absolutely helps if we have a – teachers that the students trust in the room to continue the engagement. And I'll say as well, the model. So we'll have multiple full day programs with groups of about 30 to 50 boys. We'll have about three facilitators per group. Um, we also run something with their parents, their teachers as well to continue the journey. We also run uh, research programs as well. So understanding, uh, I guess, like an insights engine on the future of masculinity. What are they thinking, feeling, believing? And then the final piece is we now started to run our programs on a gaming platform called Twitch, which is the largest yeah. streaming platform. You gamify it on Twitch? Yeah. So because the, the kids all love Twitch, especially because yeah. that's that's the biggest gaming platform. So like they're all on yeah. that. Yeah. Well, they'd, they'd be familiar with they feel They'd feel like they're in safe territory. Exactly. Or familiar territory at It's least. like um, the way I describe it, it's like the conscious Trojan horse. So, you know, it's entertaining but it's also educational. So they can talk about things like the mental health, sex, death, relationships, everything in between but done in a way, you know, if our facilitators, some of them are rappers, you know, and so they're, they're rapping about, you know, positive masculinity um, but then also opening up conversation with these young men and we can start to see and track their journey of how consistently they're showing up, the language they're using, how much they're expressing themselves, the accountability they're taking for their behaviours. It's quite an extraordinary thing I think particularly because the the metaverse is now approaching as well. Us developing a level of literacy inside of that is is going to be important. So this is obviously a charitable cause. Yeah. How's it funded? Yeah, so we are about 60% funded by philanthropy and so high net worth individuals, um, grants, etc. Uh, about 35% of our income comes from uh, fee-for-service. So we'll charge schools based on their socioeconomic status. So if we're working with a private school, they'll pay a premium, but often we're not. We're working with regional or lower socioeconomic schools and they'll pay a subsidized rate. And then about 5% of our income comes from like uh, keynote talks or um, community fundraising too. What's the role of your other business stuff in relation to the man cave. Yeah. So we, um, man cave's, you know, gone this incredible growth trajectory at the moment, like schools all across Australia and the world. Yeah, now. How many have we got? What are you talking about now? Well, we've had about 300 schools across the world come to us, um, to 
run programs. And I think it comes back to this positive way we're engaging with young men. Um, and also, you know, the skill set. We, we had developed the art of engaging boys, which is traditionally very hard. Um, but whilst all that was going on, I'd seen the boom of social impact businesses, you know, whether it's Who Gives a Crap, you know, Thank You, Tom Organic. Uh, and uh, it just didn't make sense to me why there wasn't anything in the men's space or the masculinity space. This was about four years ago. And uh, that was where the inception came. I was like, well, what would it look like to create a product that aligned to the man cave's values but was commercial in the way that it moved through the world? Um, and it could create a future funding stream for the charity but also use the power of brand and consumerism to create – Again, a positive narrative for masculinity. And I think a great example is that, um, you know, that Dove Real Beauty campaign, yeah. women all shapes and sizes, what that did for women um, and also for Dove was extraordinary. And I was like, what's the masculinity version of that? And how do we effectively give consumers that point of purchase decision that you might choose, you know, your Lynx Africa or your Old Spice, you know, with the advertising we're all too familiar with, right? Spray yourself and a flock of gorgeous women come chasing you. You know, we laugh at that, but that, you know, as an 11 year old boy, you know, you're spraying yourself and that's what you're surrounded by. It, it does have an effect. Um, and I'm like, what would it look like to create something that gave consumers that point of purchase decision where I go, I can choose Lynx, you know, Old Spice, whatever, or I can choose stuff, which I know will help a boy become a better man. And I didn't have that opportunity. I'd love to pay it forward for someone else. And so, yeah, we, uh, that was the inception of it. Um, and then we're about a year and a half into the journey now. And yeah, happy to keep talking about it. No, I think we should go to the break, but when we come back from the break, I want to talk about stuff. I mean, I'd like to know what the business model is. The man cave is really important, but stuff's really important in terms of Main, keeping you alive and keeping you motivated um, and in a commercial sense I'm talking about um, so that you can actually do the man cave. Amazing. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We're back from the break. I'm here with Hunter Johnson and uh, we sort of 
went through the Man Cave initiative and I will come back to it. I'm going to return to it, but I just want to park it for a second because I really want to talk about stuff. Yeah, well, it's definitely been um, a shift from a charity CEO to a fast-moving consumer goods CEO and launching the business during a pandemic was uh, 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 learning by fire is probably the, the way to summarize it, but I'm, I'm grateful for the, the lessons now. Um, so, yeah, stuff, um, this, effectively what we're trying to do is, is create a using the power of the brand to create a really positive narrative for masculinity. And um, the way that that looks is that um, there's kind of two funding mechanisms um, that support the man cave. The first is that the early days I caught up with a bunch of people who had run really successful um, social impact businesses and I just said, what was the model you landed on? Like how did you choose? And they said, um, well, it kind of depends on your mission. And so I was like, great, there's no script, just back myself and choose. But the one thing I did take away from that was the product has to be outstanding because at the end of the day, good marketing helps a bad product fail faster. So I was like, that is something I just got to lock in. I can't rely on the fact that it has a social impact. And so that kind of started the journey for me to go and find people who have done this before. So I've been very, very fortunate to um, find a bunch of individuals, both staff, directors, investors, who have worked in some of the biggest brands in Australia, um, you know, worked at senior executive roles at ESOP. I used to call it ASOP, since called it ESOP, um, you know, strategy at Afterpay to head of strategy at Coca-Cola um, to expanded consumer goods businesses into China and Southeast Asia, um, ingredient specialists, and really pulled them in by their values and said, this has the ability to have a commercial return, but also a significant um, social impact return as well. And so the model is um, Man Cave is a large shareholder of stuff. So if there is some major financial event in X many years time, that'll significantly inject some cash into Man Cave to help its innovation and growth. So part of your initiative was to put Man Cave, the entity Man Cave, um, as a shareholder of of the entity that owns stuff. Exactly. Alongside yourself though, I presume you're alongside it and others. Correct. Yeah, we needed this. Yeah, this needed to be a commercial venture. Yep. Um, And from an integrity point of view, Man Cave being the the largest shareholder. Um, The second thing we've recognized was like oh, your average consumer who has that momentary point of purchase decisions probably not going to give two rats if it's man cave is a, the largest shareholder it's probably too much of a leap for them to get so the the second shorter term funding mechanism is that for every thousand dollars in sales it'll fund a boy from a low socioeconomic community to go through the man caves programs and now we send in film crews into those communities see the impact on the young men talking about how the program has fundamentally changed their life can take me through it like just give me an example Oh, yeah, for sure. So I can tell you. Don't about, give me a name or anything. Just give me an example. Yeah, absolutely. So a recent workshop, walked in, we are told about the student, from the students, um, sorry, the teachers, watch out for this kid. You know, he, if he gets in trouble, just send him out. You know, I walk in and he goes to me, um, this is gay. First thing he said to me in front of 50 of his colleagues, not colleagues, his mates, they all burst out laughing. And um, one of our facilitators was gay, so that was quite, you know, a bit of a rattle for him. And I said, oh, I'm happy to lean in here. And I said, my guess is your name is, this isn't his actual name, but Declan. Everyone burst out laughing. And I said, my guess is you've got a bit of a reputation. And he goes, maybe. And I said, my guess is that reputation probably works for you. You know, you probably get a lot of credibility for it, a bit of social credibility, people probably don't mess with you and you probably get to do things that you want to do most of the time. Would that be fair? And he goes, maybe. I said, here's the thing. I know guys like you have enormous leadership potential and I'm going to practice with you today, flexing that muscle in a completely different way to how you're used to. 
In fact, who'd like to see that side of Declan? 49 hands go up. They go, there's your invitation, pal. Now, as the day opens up, Declan, uh, we're set up a safe space, you know, created the values for the day, confidentiality, the school psychologist is in the room and um, we're running a session going right down on a piece of paper, what do you show the outside versus who you really are on the inside? Set it up and I said, who'd like to go first? See this hand go up, it's Declan. And he goes, he goes, fuck it, I'll go. I'm like, great, mate, thanks. And he goes, yeah. And he just drops his paper and he goes, yeah, I guess on the outside I act like I don't care about anything, nothing affects me and you probably don't want to mess with me. But on the inside, six months ago I lost my dad to suicide. Um, I got into smoking some drugs, then that let us go into more serious drugs and mum kicked me out of home. I was living under a bridge and then I got in a fight with my dealer and I've just come back from juvie and rehab where they put me on 10 pills a day. Mum took me out of there and I've just come back to school to get my education back. He's 14 in year eight. The whole room just drops. You know, the teacher's jaws are just dropped. And I said, Declan, what's it feel like to share that? And he said, I'm a bit nervous. I said, why are you nervous? And he goes, I just don't know how it's going to be received. I said, let's check. Could I get you to raise your hand if you've got enormous respect for Declan right now? 49 hands go up. I said, I'd love to hear from some of you. What do you respect? First kid goes, I thought you were just a dickhead, mate. <laughs> I thought you were a dickhead, but wow, your life is incredible. It's like, he goes, it's like a Netflix series. Then the next kid goes, yeah, I was really intimidated by you and I didn't understand why you were the way you were, but I get you now. And then the third kid was a kid next to him, put his arm around him and said, you're my best mate. I didn't need any more evidence, but I just got it. And that is an incredibly healing moment for that boy. We've now since stayed in contact. He's now in leadership roles at that school. What would, it, what would the program look like then, like uh, post that meeting that day? Yeah, so we, we work with that school. Um, we've now worked with that school for a couple of years. Um, so be able to track the journey. We stay in close contact with the teachers, the school psychologists. Um, and now that's where Twitch comes in. So it, it's able to be this digital after-school care program, almost an online community where boys can come in, still feel that sense of connection to the culture that we created. And yeah, that's what I find most inspiring is we're, we're having this kind of tipping point conversation with 30,000 young men having these beautiful moments like this where they get to see each other. And I think that's something which I've found in through our programs really important that it's this sentiment that you can't hate somebody whose story that you know. You know, I think that and I watch that take place with young men all the time, like guys going, that bloke's been my best mate for five years and I've just learned more about him in two minutes than five years of our friendship. And by the way, I've done that in some of the biggest boardrooms in this country as well, got them sitting opposite each other, sharing their life story in two minutes and the other person just has to sit still. And within five minutes, their room is in tears going, I had no idea that that's who you were or what you went through. You know, it's beautiful. And often it just takes a little bit of permission for us to do that and just bring it back. I think that's what's really exciting about where masculinity is up to right now. How do those values overlay on what you produce at stuff. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is create conscious content is the the short answer to that. So it's you mean written content? Or, or- all everything. So the marketing, the branding, the, you know, it's it's really trying to create its own category. Instead of content that's just a bit shocking or sensationalized or, you know, is about um, just grabbing the most eyeballs because we know we shouldn't look at it. What does it look like to create like conscious content that is both like wholesome but funny and a little bit edgy at the same time and um 
you know, we use all our man cave facilitators who are the people that run our programs in all of our advertising. Um, and then for staff, you know, the, the pro- we should probably talk about the products. Yeah, what are the yeah. products, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, um, you know, skincare for male grooming effectively. For so young got, men or? So for all men. Like yeah. if the kid's got pimples or what is that? Yeah, the sort of so stuff we've got about? face scrub, moisturizer, face wash, um, deodorants, uh, shampoo, body wash, and we're about to bring out an SPF. We've worked with the ex uh uh, head of product and innovation from ESOP to support us to get the products at a really high quality and affordable price point. We're now sold through Woolies, um, Sephora will be shortly. Um, and also we're talking to another major pharmacy um, channel at the moment, final stages there, also in Shaver Shop, and we do our own direct-to-consumer too. Um, Ian Thorpe has just come on as an investor and ambassador as well, just given his story as well. It's perfectly aligned for us. And that's one of the things I'm really interested in now, actually in a capital raise, um, to uh, bring together a community of investors from a values perspective, but also know that we can make a significant commercial return for this too. Your formulas for, mm. or how you formularize these products, it's more about the values of, of stuff that make it an attractive proposition for the young men to buy it. Is it more about that? Yeah, I think the product is a really high quality. Um, yeah, the, the but, thing the, but for, there are a lot of high quality things. E- exactly. So I think it is high quality, but it's also at a price point that's affordable. So high quality with price point, but also with a narrative. Exactly. And and this is where, you know, my journey as a CEO and in this space has come in where I'm like, oh, great. When someone has like three seconds to make a decision on a shelf, are they going to have, if they don't have an understanding of what the brand is, narrative is or the social impact what is it that's going to you know activate that kind of system one thinking for the make to the impulse buy and so for us you know even a brand name that's like it's called stuff so stuff for your pits stuff for your face stuff for your head and body stands out itself and then that's where the packaging comes in and then once they get to know us they'll know that you know we do have social impact so that when you buy stuff you're funding a mental health program one of my businesses is a home loan market and you know, like it's all very well for me to say, you know, my my loan is better than everybody else's, but, you know, there's no Armani dollars. There's no you know, designer dollars. My dollars are the same as Commonwealth Bank's dollars or Westpac's dollars. And if you line us, I say to my team, if you line us all up together and let's say the interest rate off you and the mortgage is slightly less than everybody else, but it's not significant less because it can't be because we just, you know, the money's cost us the same as it costs everybody. Mm. The margins are pretty much the same. The only difference that makes someone buy my product or come to my branch is because they like us. And so you've got to put a proposition up there why you were liked. You know, either you're liked because John Simons did, he was liked because Aussie Home Loans was taking on the banks. Um, What is the reason I'm liked? You know, because likability is really important Mm. and it's about relatability. Mm. You know, what's relevant and what's relatable to me, the buyer. In your case, your audience are, say, young men. Or perhaps their parents. Um, it could be their credit card that's buying the, the yeah. item for their kids. It could be, you know, thirty-year-old kid who's got pimples, you know, pu- puberty, etc. Um, would you, do you know what it is that's driving your likability factor? Yeah, so it's great question, and I fully agree. So, in supermarkets, it's uh, it used to be about sixty percent of personal care products for men were bought by the main grocery household buyer. Now it's shifted to about fifty-fifty from the latest data we've got. So, it has to be appealing to the grocery buyer, but also the end user. 
and yeah. sometimes the end user is the buyer. So they're, they're your audiences, your two Correct. audiences. Yeah, yep. two audiences. and Could so be mum or dad or carer. Exactly. And the user. And the user, exactly. Um, and early days we started off targeting um, young men in particular, like that kind of 21-year-old uh, men and the concept being it's a lot uh, easier to sell a, tw- a 13-year-old, a 21-year-old's product than sell a 21-year-old a 13-year-old's product, yeah, so sense. aspirational in the sense. Um, but what we're now seeing is that, you know, many men and families are still are buying it because they really resonate with the brand, which I think comes after about a year in the game and just seeing, the, I think, the data of what's what's moving the product. Um, but, yeah, I think I think to your point, the, it's, it, it represents hope at the same time. And I think people who know the story are familiar with the growth and, of Man Cave as well. They're like, you know, I'm really proud to have this in my bathroom or my toiletry cabinet. And I think that's really what I think we can leverage and particularly with this capital raise, that's the, the big focus is the brand awareness. Just to drive more brand awareness yeah. and, and therefore you need a brand message. Um, well, you need you need to solidly uh, um, attribute your brand to, to something that is emotional and important to your audiences, audiences in your case. And then you need to drive that pretty hard, you know, like on every medium, wherever that is. I mean, thank you was a good example. Yeah. Um, and it just took the sort of, I don't even know if it's a global brand, but it certainly took Australia by storm in some respects. And, I, you know, I, I remember seeing myself buy, and I don't even know why I bought it. I just looked like, yeah, I just like the name. Yeah. I just thought, thank you. It must have some sort of charitable association attached to it. Um, and, and I did buy it. And, uh, so, like, I guess what I'm trying to work out, though, have you have you got to a point yet that you know what the two or three messages are um, in relation to stuff relative to your audiences? Like, you know, is it uh, buy this and, you know, some of the money will end up in the hands of the man cave or, you know, buy this? When you say hope, uh, hope for what? Yeah, I think it's hope for masculinity is what I'm alluding to in that comment and not to... I guess, speak to not that we're not hopeful, but I think, you know, this aspirational masculinity is something which, again, isn't really talked about right now. But the key message I would hone in on is that buying stuff funds young men's mental health programs. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know that when young men have better mental health, they have better relationships, we're better communities. Yeah, that, that's, that's I, I actually think that's a, I'm just a sort of a one, but I'm just thinking, I think that's a pretty powerful and to some extent unique mm. proposition. Um, it's not about saying, you know, you become beautiful or we'll get rid of your pimples because you can't even make those promises. By no, the way, exactly. these young people, they don't believe shit. Man. Yeah. They are smarter yeah. than we think. Yeah. They'll, they'll research stuff on YouTube. We've already researched, done, looked at YouTube. And they know something about these. Exactly. Uh, the, the whole process of the products, et cetera, that we don't even think about. But if you hit them up with something like that yeah, and statistics perhaps without scaring the shit out of them, but, you know, you know like facts, yeah, why we should try to change things, why we should try to understand, why we need to be a bit better and try and improve our positions. Um, and I, I just think that that would be quite powerful. It would be a difficult messaging to put in there because you don't want to go over the top either. It's, yeah. it's difficult how you message, not yes. what you message, but how you message without looking like it's too much of a, a charity. Yeah, big time. And it's not a proper product. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the lessons. It can't be too woke, can't yeah. be virtue signaling too yeah, much. Yeah. It's still got to be able to brand that similar to how, you know, your experience with Thank You, the, the brand stood up in its own right and then you learned about it. Yeah. It still has to be able to have that effect. Um, but what's interesting, we've even been in discussions with, you know, some of the massive conglomerates like Unilever, Procter & Gamble, um, Natura as well, who are huge businesses and they're interested you know, because what 
what we've got infused into the DNA of the business is unreplicable. They can create a skincare brand in, you know, tomorrow, but what they can't replicate is the authenticity um, of what is Man Cave, the impact it's having um, across, you know, cultures. So that is, I think, a really interesting part of our trajectory and particularly with how, to your point, how savvy the next gen consumers are, how people are more voting with their wallets than ever before. And all the data backs us up. When consumers are given a choice of choosing a social impact product over just a, you know, standard product, like 90% of the time, they're going to choose the social impact product. As long as they know. Yep. I mean, and it's about telling the story mm. and, and making the story um, believable. Yeah. And as you said, not too woke. Yeah. No, well, not, not too much value signaling. I, I think they, they work that shit out pretty fast. Yeah. They see politicians and, yeah. you know, older people, that, uh, you know, signaling all the time how, you know, important they are and how, you know, high-minded they are relative to everybody else. And, in fact, it creates a, an impasse between that generation of people and those people who are doing the signaling. I mean, I, I still see it. Like, and mm. I'm, like, I'm older than most people that signal. And, uh, but I, I feel as though there's a chasm between me and them. Yeah. Um, I, and, and to me, I find it fucking annoying, to be honest with you. Like, I, I go the other way. I won't buy it. Yeah. Because of it. Who the fuck do you think you are? Yeah. You're like telling me how I should live my life, so to speak, mm. relatively speaking. It's more about um, trying to, but I think anyway, more about, and it's a great journey, by the way. It's more about um, trying to make myself relatable to them. Mm. You know, I, do I understand what they're doing or going through, what they experience, what their mates are experiencing, what they're seeing, and how do I tell them that story without sort of jamming it down their throat. It's really curious to me. It's a great thing. You've, got, you've done two great things here. The Man Cave is a great way for you to learn but at the same time add value to your community that you're talking to. I mean you're learning stuff that no one else would be able to learn yeah. anywhere. Yeah. I yeah. Think, and then you've got a great product. Yeah. One of the lessons I learned early days in pre-Man Cave was I saw that philanthropy was the rocket fuel for the social impact sector. And then I worked out, this is like in my early 20s, I worked out that um, those who were often wealthy enough to give their money away were pretty savvy commercially at the same time. Mm. And I started to just put myself in rooms to learn about philanthropy. And I was the youngest in the room by a good, you know, 30 years, 40 years. But it made it gave me a level of understanding of the nuances of philanthropy and as well as private wealth, you know, the family dynamics, the wealth transfer. And I got to, I guess, understand not just from a um, what goes well, but also what often goes wrong. And through that, I got to be exposed to some incredible families and generational wealth. And through that, you know, also recognize that if we, and I'm probably one of those, you know, next generation that does, you know, I'm audacious in the sense that I think, can think we can change the world by combining the wealth inheritance that's about to be transitioned from, you know, my parents, grandparents' generation to my generation, connecting that with entrepreneurs who have a social and environmental purpose behind their business. I think that'll supercharge positive change in the world, cooking governments or corporates. And through that, that was my training ground where I recognized, I was like, whoa, I get how this all knits together. And through that, yeah, I met some, you know, I was lucky enough to go to the United Nations for a conference on this. And suddenly I was sitting opposite, you know, the Rockefeller family, the Carnegie's, Nelson Mandela's grandson was speaking and I got to see, oh God, they're all, sh I actually even, Captain Planet, the guy who created Captain Planet, his grandson is now one of the biggest advocates for climate change. He's a billion dollar, multi-billion dollar family and his grandson, talk about a values transfer, is now one of the biggest funders and advocates for climate change. So I got to see that in New York and I came back and I was like, right, 
that really lit like a rocket up me. And I was like, cool, how do we do this in Australia and how do we use business as a tool for social change? And that was the inception that then led into Man Cave and, and now the, I think the commercial arm of what we're trying to do with stuff. So just to close off, you got anything you want to ask me? I've got many things I want to ask you, but um, I'd love to know, you know I'm, I'm interested in like First Nations thinking and often they talk about seven, making decisions seven generations ahead. And I, I really like that because it challenges traditional conceptions in our Western context of growth and actually makes it more about sustainability. So I often see male leaders um, making decisions around um, potentially short-term outcomes opposed to long-term outcomes. And often it's not necessarily about the overall prosperity of a community. So I have no doubt you've been in many rooms with many influential people, particularly men. Knowing what you know and the journey you're on now, what would you change or would you uh, instruction would you give to these male leaders so that we can create a more equal society? Be honest. And, uh, and what I mean by that is be honest with themselves first off. So my biggest bugbear today is that politics is driven by on one side, um, particularly in this country, but globally, uh, driven by on one side, um, people who are, uh, playing to the, with short-termism, playing to the loudest noise, whatever they are. So environment, um, uh, diversity, inclusivity, etc. which are all great ideas, they're great things, things that should be addressed, but they're short-term looking at this and the only reason they're doing it is to make sure that they can stay in for long-term. So short-termism is driving uh, their policies in order for their long-termism as opposed to proper sustainable outcomes. That's the first one. That's one side of politics. The other side of politics is taking the view, we're just going to do everything the opposite to what that side of politics does. So we're going to go down the old traditional routes. This is the conservative environment uh, and we will just attack that environment, th- those, those ideas and just talk about the, the stupidity of it or the lack of logic atto- attached to it and then we'll put words around like wokeism and stuff like that and all of a sudden it becomes about terminology um, and uh, popularity and, uh, um, you know, quick hits and stuff that appears makes sense to the media. They're playing the media big time and then the media go and play them big time and they're just it's one, just one big fucking game. It kills me. What I'd love to see is what you just said, um, maybe not eight generations, but um, thinking about sustainability and what have we got to do for sustainability, but at the same time we, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. So we can't create a short-term problem like unemployment in a particular part of New South Wales, for argument's sake, where we close down all the mines or, you know, put people put people in distress mm. um, and or create a price of energy problem, for example. But at the same time, be honest about it. Say, this is what we're going to do now because we want to keep everybody employed employed as much as we possibly can. But at the same time, over, over a period of time, we're going to introduce or get rid of these sorts of environmental problems or things that create environmental problems and um, introduce better alternatives. Just be honest. Don't, don't say you know the plan. Don't say you have to do something by 2030. You know, like stop being so prescriptive about everything And because uh, it's not 2030 that's important. They think it is from a short-term survival point of view, not from an environment's point of view, just for their own personal survival. And that is to me is dishonest and, that, and the way they do it is so good, it tells me they're not being honest with themselves. They are so good at convincing everybody that they're committed to 2030 
it's like they're lying to themselves. That's the only way they can be so good at it because it's going to create a whole series of other problems on the other side of it. Mm. And that's wrong and it's unfair. I just wish everyone would be honest, very honest, and just sit down and say, okay, we've got a problem. How are we going to solve it? But we don't want to create further problems when we are trying to solve it. It's a bit like you get a carpenter or a tradesman come to your house, say, well, plumber, can you fix that? And they dig a dirty big hole to fix that problem. They create fucking 50 more problems around you. They don't fix the problems further up the line. They just fix that problem right there and they make a mess. They break the concrete that they've just, you know, had to sort out. They've disturbed the whole household, you know, they've put you out of pocket, they've kept you, they've delayed, they've come back, you know, they've cancelled five or six times. That's what it feels like to me. It feels like I'm dealing with, and I'm not having a crack with tradesmen here, but it feels like I'm dealing with tradesmen who are running the country. It feels very unprofessional. It doesn't feel well thought through. It's very reactive and it's just playing to what they consider the loudest noise. And that in itself to me is dishonest. And I think, and I don't mean intentionally dishonest, I just mean not looking at themselves honestly. What can I deliver realistically mm. or what can we do realistic? And it's not just about environment. It's about inclusion, diversity. It's about everything, respect, you know, how I treat my mother, how I treat my sister, how I treat my family and all my friends outside of there. You know, it's about time we had a proper conversation over a proper period of time convened and facilitated by people who have a a relevant and a relevant interest, but without self-interest. Hmm. That's what I'd like to see. I really like that. The thing that uh, I reflect on in, with that answer is um, I remember I very lucky to sit in a session with a guy from McKinsey and he talked about how a lot of the world's problems are transitioning from complicated problems to complex problems. And he gave an example of like organizing an airport is like a complicated problem. Like it's tough, but we can work it out. We're now moving into a time where what we have what's called like a meta crisis, you know, everything from geopolitical instability to climate change, the wars, mental health, you know, unemployment, impending recession potentially. It's like we're in complex uncharted times. Totally. And he said one of the trickiest things for particularly those in leadership with public profile is that people want confidence and they want direction. And when leaders have to sit there and go, we don't actually know what to do right now. We have our best people working on this and we're going to try our very best. Sometimes the public are like, who is this clown? Like we voted you to give us the direction because I agree with you, but I also think there is this still, I don't know what it is, if it's just inside of people and dynamics that um, we want the assertive leader that, you know, and I think often that's what Trump provided people as well. It was like, it kind of didn't matter if what he was saying, it was just he delivered it with truth in a time of incredible complexity. So I think I agree with you. And I think that's just my little um, open question or reflection for anyone listening too. Yeah, I, th- I think of that. And uh, it's a good question. It's a very good question. And I, I think about it all the time because people often ask me, would I get involved in politics? I wouldn't do it because I don't think I could be that way. Mm. I, I, but I mean by that, I don't think I could be honest because I just get shouted down mm. and I wouldn't get anywhere. And there's no, therefore, and I wouldn't have an impact. Therefore, there's no point in doing it. Therefore, I won't do it. Mm. I will only do something if I can do something. Mm. Uh, you know, I, yeah, unless I can have an effect that yeah. I'm sure about, yeah. I'm not going to offer myself up. Yeah. I wouldn't put myself in that environment for quids. No, no way in the world. And that in of itself, I think, is the problem of our political system. You know, as I don't think our top talent necessarily goes into 
politics. Some do, absolutely not. But it's definitely the you know the big companies that come and cherry pick the talent, which is often for commercial means. And unfortunately, a lot of the model for commercial means is this concept of like a multipolar trap. It's like someone's going to do it, so we may as well do it first. And then that just compounds until you know we we get an environment in the circumstance we're in. And that's something which I think I would love for our government to get quite innovative and actually lean on our business leaders is what is the incentive structures that we can absolutely give these people, you know, our top talent who have leadership capabilities, put them in these roles, but nurturing them from the beginning. Remember I caught up with a criminal justice judge and he talked to me about um, they're on the real pointy end of humanity, like, you know, seeing people at their worst. And that's why I really liked Man Cave as a preventative thing. Um, But he was like, you know, a lot of the judges had alcohol problems because they were exposed to a lot of trauma and then didn't have the support structures around them to process that trauma and so turned to the drink. Like psychiatrists. Same thing, right? But then that impacts their decision-making abilities. And then suddenly starting to see the ripple effect on society, you know, and we see all these statistics around, you know, if they've eaten or not eaten, if it's before or after a lunch break, you know. And so I am really interested in, you know, what are the incentives? And as we look to kind of, I guess, coming back to what we shared earlier, I think we're a time in between stories where we're designing what's next. And I think having conversations like this really honestly and going, all right, we need to look at this. What are the support structures we're putting around people who make decisions that impact the most amount of people? Well, maybe one day, I'll, I'd better close this off in the interest of time, but maybe one day governments will start to um, create inquiries which are chaired and the task force which sits around the inquiry is completely external, no government involvement. People get paid for it for their time. And uh, they then they do something about that inquiry or the findings of that inquiry without trying to influence it. But Hunter Johnson has been really interesting to talk to you. Your, I, I mean, I like the stuff, commerciality of that. I mean, I just think it's got a lot of legs. It makes sense to me. I like the story behind it. But good luck with Man Cave, mate. It's very important. I mean, I've got a grandson and I want to make sure that one day when he's at school, if there's ever an issue, there's, there is an organisation that can at least help him through that process because uh, – it's getting harder and harder to relate to these kids So from, from a parent and a grandparent's point of view. So I appreciate you coming in. Thanks very much. Thanks for tuning in, mate, and just who you are. Yeah, it's, it's amazing to have role models like this. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Mentor. Audio and production is by Jess Morley and production assistance, Jonathan Leondis. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.